Hey, I know a lot of you. Um, my name is Robbie Lashua. I used to work here at this church for like 10 years, and uh, now I don't work here, uh, but I'm working here today. So it's going to be awesome. Uh, I work for a company called Stand to Reason. We do apologetics ministry, and uh, this is my home church, though. Uh, this is where my family and I attend. We love Desert Springs, and Steve asked me if I would uh, come and preach this summer, which I was really excited about. And so uh, he'll be back, as you heard, uh, in a couple weeks. But today we're going to continue studying in Hebrews chapter 11. But I don't want you to turn there. I want you to turn to Joshua chapter 2. All right, Joshua, sixth book in the Bible, Joshua chapter 2. Because we're going to be talking about a really important character this morning, Rahab. Rahab. I'm so excited about uh, talking about her and who she was and the example of faith that she is in our lives. Um, so to recap really quick what has gone on, and Trevor talked about this last week, uh, Moses bleeds the Israelites out of Egypt, right? Around 1446 BC is when that happened. He leads them out. They cross the Red Sea. The Egyptian army is annihilated, right? They get into the desert. They're supposed to go take the promised land because God promised Abraham about 400 years before that he was going to give them this land. They go out there. Moses sends in 12 spies to check it out. Ten of the 12 come back, and they're freaked out. No way are we going to make it. These people are giants. We should not go in. Two of the spies said, no, we can take it. Like, come on, if God's on our side, we can do it. Well, everybody listened to the 10. They chickened out. They didn't go in. So God tells them, now you get to wander in a circle in the desert for 40 years until everybody 20 years old and older dies. Terrible, right? So for 40 years, they're just circling, waiting for all those people to die off, burying them, circling, walking past the graveyard, burying more people, 40 years. That's where we uh, pick up our story. Joshua comes into uh, leadership. He was one of the two good spies, so he gets to go in. And now it's time to lead the Israelites into the promised land. They're crossing the river, and they're going to start taking over all of the Canaanite cities. Hebrews 11, 30 through 31. It says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the harlot, the prostitute, did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. So what is going on here? And today we want to say, what is the author of Hebrews trying to tell us about Rahab the prostitute? Why is she a good example of faith? And so we need to check out her story. We need to see what happened with Rahab. And that is in Joshua chapter 2. So let's look at verses 1 through 7. It says, Then Joshua the son of Nun sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim. So this is great. He, he knew when they sent 12 before it didn't work out so great. So he's like, you know what? We're only sending two dudes this time. That's it. Two guys are going to scope out the land. He told them, go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and they came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house for they've come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, yes, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. 
But she had brought them up on the roof and hidden them under stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Okay, so what's going on here? Two spies sent in, and let's just, let's talk about the obvious here. Why did they go to a prostitute's house, right? It's a weird thing. This isn't a... Uh, Espionage 101, right? This is probably not something we should do. What are they doing? I thought about this a lot. And there's so much speculation we can have on why they went there. I think that it's a pretty good place to hide. Think about it. Foreigners go there all the time. Travelers going in and out of prostitutes' house all the time. It's a pretty inconspicuous place to go and to hide out, but it's not perfect. They get found out. Uh, the Canaanites at this point in history would have been on high alert, and here's why. Uh, Israel crossed the Red Sea. As we're going to find out, they've heard about what happened to Egypt. The Canaanites actually would write letters to Egypt and ask for military help. Could you imagine, like, knowing the biggest army in the world doesn't really exist anymore because they all drowned in the Red Sea, and now you're left out on your own if anybody attacks you, it'd be kind of a scary place to be. Oh, and by the way, there's two million people just like circling the desert next to you. <laughs> just, and you're just watching them like, what are they doing? Are they coming in here? And they're just out there forever. You would be on high alert, right? Jericho was actually a, a fortified city, two walls around it. And uh, at this point in time, there were a ton of military guys there because they knew Israel's coming for them. They were watching it. They're on high alert. So the king is monitoring even who's going in and out of the prostitute's house. And he, he hears that these two Hebrews went in there. And so he says, hey, send them out. And for some reason, this lady lies about it. She lies about it. And she sends the cops on a wild goose chase. She's like, you know, if you hurry, man, you could probably catch them. Go, go, go. While they're still in town, hidden on her roof. What is going on? Why did she do this? Well, we got to keep reading to find out. Joshua 2, starting verse 8. Now before they lay down, they came, uh, she came up to them on the roof, and she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you, and when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Shehan and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is the God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you will also deal kindly with my father's household, and give me a pledge of truth, and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. Now we understand a little bit about why she did what she did. Uh, this is actually a really important passage in the Old Testament. It is, it is one of the longest unbroken speeches of a woman in all of the Bible. Oh, Joshua, when he wrote this down, he's highlighting this. Like, you really need to listen to what this lady is saying. And she makes a couple of interesting uh, uh, statements. Uh, she says, we've heard of you. And you think about, how did she hear about this, right? Well, she, there's a bunch of people coming in and out of her house all the time, right? She's hearing a lot of foreigners talking about what's been happening uh, over time, what happened to the Egyptian army, what happened to the, the kings, the Amorite kings across the river, and how Israel's just 
wiping everybody out, and their God seems to be pretty powerful. But she says two really fascinating things. I'll look at verse 9 again. She says, I know the Lord has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. This is fascinating, because what she's doing is she's, she's quoting Moses. What do you think? Why is a Canaanite prostitute quoting Moses, right? Well, when, when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, and then the Egyptians got wiped out, uh, in Exodus 15, Moses writes this song. It's called the Song of the Sea. And he teaches it to the Israelites, and they all sing this song together to celebrate what God has done. And half of the song is about the past and what God's already done, and then half of it's about the future. And he's prophesying about what's going to keep happening. Look at Exodus 15, 15 through 16. This is what Moses says. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Isn't that what she just said's happened? She doesn't know what Moses said. She doesn't know this Hebrew song, but you know who does? The two spies know it. They would have grown up singing this. They would have grown up with this as part of their worship service. They, they know this song of Moses. And now they're sitting with a pagan Canaanite prostitute, and she is telling them what Moses prophesied about has come true. Could you imagine that? That would have probably encouraged you a little bit. Like, okay, we can do this. We can take over these people. They're all freaked out about us. She's prophesying Moses to us. And we know that the spies were excited about it because when they go back to Joshua, it says they recounted all of the things that they learned, but they specifically said... The terror of us has fallen upon the Canaanites and they have melted away. They're like, dude, she quoted Moses to us. God is in this, right? Fascinating. She says another really interesting uh, a statement in, in the 24th verse. She says, surely the Lord uh, has given all the land into your hands and he is, sorry, this is in uh, Joshua 2.11. He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. He is God in heaven above, on earth beneath. When you're reading the Old Testament and you see the word Lord all capitalized, you know how there's like the all capitalized ones and then there's the Lord that has lowercase letters in it? Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay, so what they're trying to alert you to is that they're different words in Hebrew. The lowercase one is the word Adonai. It just means Lord. Like, like God can be a Lord or a king can be a Lord. Anybody can be a Lord. It's like a sir. But when it's all capitalized, it's the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's the Hebrew word of God's specific name. And that's the one she uses in Joshua 2.11. She says, the Lord, your God, or Yahweh, your God. So it's not a title for God. This isn't Elohim or Adonai. It's his name. She's specifically saying, their God. Your God, Yahweh, he's God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Uh, the Canaanites worshipped a whole bunch of different gods. Uh, they worshipped Baal, they worshipped um, uh, Ashereth, they worshipped Ishtar, they worshipped Marduk, and all of these gods, they were compartmentalized. They had small jobs. Uh, Baal was the god of the thunder and fertility, right? And the other ones were, were gods of other things. And she says, no, 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 your god, he's the god of like all of it. He's the big one. He's not a small little mini god. He's the big god of everything. Heavens above and earth beneath. And I'm a super nerd, and so I love this kind of stuff. Uh, this phrase, heavens above and earth beneath, it's only used three times in the Bible before Rahab says it. 
Two of the places where it's used are in the, the Ten Commandments, when Moses talks about it in Exodus and when he talks about it in Deuteronomy, uh, when God says, have no idols before me. And then he specifically says, and don't make graven images of things in the heavens above or in the earth beneath, right? Worship God only. Why? Because he's the God of the heavens above and the earth beneath. You're not going to make these little stupid idols. Those are two of the places where that phrase is mentioned. The other is in Deuteronomy 4.39, and it says this, Know therefore today, and take it to your heart, that Yahweh, he is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. Rahab's come to believe this because of what she's heard of the Israelites' God. So she's not just saying, your God freaks us out, try not to bring him here, please, you know, don't bring the ark over here and decimate us. That's not what she's saying. She's saying, I've come to a place to realize your God, he's the real one. Like, he, he's the big one, not my culture, not my small gods over here. And she was from this really horribly backwards culture. And I know we think things are bad for us uh, now in America. This is nothing compared to what the Canaanites were doing. Uh, God promised that the, the Canaanites' sins would get filled up. He told Abraham that, that they're not as bad as they're going to get, so I'm going to give them another 400 years, and then you're going to wipe them out and take the land. And that's what Joshua is doing. And right at this point in history, in 1400 B.C., we have Canaanite uh, writings. We have their laws from this time period. And they actually switched their laws to legalize uh, pedophilia, uh, to legalize incest. Uh, now it wasn't just happening, it was legal. Horrible culture. And this is what Rahab has grown up in. This is what she has known. I mean, she's kind of a victim of this. She's a prostitute, for crying out loud, right? But she came to a place in that to recognize, no, 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 Yahweh, he's the real God. He's the true God. He's the big God over all of this. She had come to a place of trusting and putting her faith and belief in the God of the Hebrews. That's why she hid these guys. That's why she, she, she lied to her king, because she wanted to follow reality instead of following the lies of her culture. So Rahab, with this background, asked the spies to help her out. I know you're going to kill everybody in my city. I know you're going to level the place. I know you're going to take over this. I know God's given it all to you, but can you spare me and my family? Since I've been kind to you, can you spare us, right? And the spies, what do they say? What's their response? Look at verse 14. The men said to her, our life for yours if you do not tell this business of ours. And it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we'll deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. Doesn't it kind of seem like she's done this before? Have you ever thought about that? I'm like, I don't think this was her first rodeo. Because her house was on the city wall so that she was living on the wall. She said to them, go to the hill country so that the pursuers will not happen upon you. Hide yourself there for three days until the pursuers return. Again, like she knows the tactics of the police force. You see that? Like, if you go this way, they're going to go that way. Three days, they don't keep looking. She's, I think she's done this before. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, listen, we'll be free from this oath to which, we have made, to which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down, and gather to yourself into the house your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. 
It shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be free. But anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on your head if a hand is laid on him, on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. She said, according to your words, so be it. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Now, there's a lot of talk about what, what's the deal with this scarlet cord, right? They promise, if you tie this thing in your window, we won't attack anybody who's in there. But if you go outside, they're dead. What's the deal with this scarlet cord? Well, some people, you know, will say it, it's a sign. Just like, you know, in, in Egypt, the Israelites painted the blood of the lamb on their doorpost, and death was passed over them. In a similar way, the red cord is hanging there as a symbol of salvation, and death passes over her. There's probably that. There's probably symbolism of that, right? Um, another, another thing people talk about is how uh, this is foretelling Jesus, right? It's looking to his blood being applied to us and protecting us, and salvation is found in him, and anyone who's under the blood of Christ, right, gets saved. And I think that's probably in there too. Uh, another thing is that, that um, back in this time period, they would use red cords and red decorations as a symbol that they are a house of prostitution. And we do this today. Well, we don't do this today. You know what I'm talking about. This happens in our day. Uh, the red light districts, right? It's still going on. It's, just, it's a common symbol for a long time. And I think it's fascinating that she takes this symbol of promiscuity and sin, and that's the very thing that, that becomes the marker of what saves. Isn't that, isn't that crazy how God can take who we were and he can change it into who he wants us to become? There's a lot of symbolism in the red cord, but she hangs it up, and this now is a symbol to the Israelites not to attack whoever's in there. And Trevor talked about last week how Joshua comes and they circle and they walk around once, walk around twice, and on the seventh day they walk around seven times, and the walls collapsed. They make a beautiful ramp. The Israelites go in. They conquer it, right? But if you go to Israel today, or if you look at any of the archaeological excavations, uh, there's a portion of the wall, the outer wall, that didn't fall over, and it hasn't fallen over. And it's the only portion that had little apartments built into it. Uh, to this day, to this day, a Rahab's house stands. Is that crazy? It's because the Bible's real, right? We don't believe in Star Wars faith. It's not a galaxy far, far away. It happened here in the real world, in time-space history. God spared Rahab. And I think this story is amazing, but we have to talk about what can we learn from it. What do we learn from Rahab's story? And, and for this, I really want to emphasize what does the author of Hebrews want us to learn from her story? And so for that, we need to think about what the... the the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11. You remember, and we've been in Hebrews for a long time, but you remember this chapter is the, the hall of faith. And he's just listing all of these rock stars of the Old Testament who lived faithful lives for, for God. It's actually in chronological order is how he lists them, right? He starts with Abel, and then he goes to Enoch, and then he goes to Noah, and then he goes to Abraham, and then he goes to Isaac. And if you were a good Jewish kid which is who the Hebrews are. That's why he's writing to Hebrews. They're Jews, right? They know these stories. This is Sunday school. They know how it goes. They're anticipating who's coming next. 
Oh, I bet you know who's going to be next? Let me think. Oh, probably Jacob, right? Because he's next in line. Who's going to be after Jacob? Oh, Joseph. Yeah, crazy. Oh, who's going to be after Joseph, right? And they know the story. So they're being encouraged, but they're like, yeah, okay, okay, okay. And then he gets to Moses. And in their minds, all of them are anticipating who? Joshua. Joshua's next. Joshua, is, he's, he's the hero. He's the conquest, right? Like, come on. And he gets to our passage, and he doesn't mention Joshua. Why is he doing that? It's because he's trying to draw their attention to something important. He's drawing them out of their Sunday school sleep of knowing the story. He says, by faith, the walls fell down, and Rahab, and at that point, it's like the record scratch, right? With Rahab? That's not right. Joshua. Joshua goes in that spot, man. Like, what are you talking about? No. Rahab. Rahab is the crescendo of this passage of Scripture. It's very odd. She is the last person mentioned having great faith in this chapter and then describing what she did to have great faith. He goes on and he says stuff like, oh, if I had time, I could talk about Gideon and some other guys, right? But she is the crescendo of the point that he's trying to make. He's drawing your attention to something being out of place here, and it's Rahab. So what does he want us to learn about this? What is he trying to say Rahab can teach us? I think one of the things we can learn from Rahab is that fear of God is greater than fear of man. Fear of God is greater than fear of man. Who are you going to obey? Are you going to obey the cultural pressure you're under, or are you going to obey the real God? Rahab denied her people, denied her friends, denied her city, denied her culture in order to follow reality, in order to follow truth. And you know, I was thinking about this in, in our life, and I've been thinking about my culture, and I, I'm not trying to tell you what to do or step on toes here. I'm just telling you what's been going on with me. For the past few months, I've been really struggling with something kind of trivial, but it's been a big deal to me. You see, my culture has been Disney, right? That's my culture. I grew up, the, the, all the movies I went to as a kid, Disney movies. Where do we go on vacation? Disneyland, like all the time. I had an annual pass. I lived in Arizona, but I had a pass, and I go all the time in college. Loved it. Loved everything about it, right? And then you get the Disney Channel, right? And then you get Disney Plus, right? And then my toys as a kid were Disney. I remember one time praying to the Lord. I'm not kidding. I knelt down by my waterbed. That's how old I am. I had a waterbed. <laughs> and I knelt down, and I was praying because my, my Peter Pan hat from Disneyland had gotten crumpled. You know those felt hats that they have? And I was praying that God could fix my Peter Pan hat and my Pirates of the Caribbean sword that I snapped hitting my brother. And he didn't do it, you know? But I mean, this is, the, the, I, this is my culture. And now Disney is, they're doing a lot of stupid stuff. And they're doing a lot of stuff that goes against what this says. And it's a struggle for me. Like, what do, okay, where's my allegiance? Like, what do I do? Like, how, 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 do I, how do I balance that? How do I let it impact my kids, right? And I just, I think for us as Christians, thinking through not just Disney, but what things in our culture are, are pressuring us not to follow what God says, not to follow what God says. What do you have to compromise in your life instead of following what God says? You know, sometimes it comes, like, with real pressure, too, not just entertainment pressure, right? But real pressure. I know so many people in the business world, 
and they're being told that you have to put your preferred personal pronouns on your emails now, right? And if, you, if you're a, a male, but you want to be identified as a her, you can put that. And if you're, if you're a lady, but you want to be identified as a they, you put that. And then people in your organization, like, that's how they have to refer to him. Or that's how they have to refer to they, right? And I read this, and it says, don't bear false witness. It says, don't lie. And that very idea is making me lie about reality. It's making me lie about what's going on in the real world, because there's male and female. And now I'm being pressured, right? And I might get fired. My job might be on the line. How am I going to feed my kid? And, and you can see how it's easy to compromise and say, yeah, well, God, I know what you said, but man, this will really be bad over here. Rahab, she rejected everything. She, her whole city was destroyed, everything. She wasn't finding comfort in her, her security there, in her cultural uh, uh, norms and the comfort of, of her culture and who she was growing up. She denied everything in order to be faithful to reality. And I think that's the point that the writer of Hebrews is driving home to us. You remember the Hebrews, the whole point of the book is Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He's a greater sacrifice. He's a greater high priest. He's better than angels, right? He's better than Moses. He's the best sacrifice we've got. That's what the whole book's about. And he's writing it because these Hebrews were being persecuted. And they're being pressured to return to Judaism. And that would be the easy way to go. That would be the comfortable way to go. I'm just going to go back to that. You know, that's my family. Like, that's it. And he says, no. Rahab, we've got to be like Rahab, who left everything in order to be faithful to the truth, to be faithful to reality. Turn over to Joshua 6. This is so cool. Joshua 6, 22 through 25. It says, Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all she has out there as you have sworn to her. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had. They also brought out all her relatives and they placed them outside the camp of Israel. I, I want to highlight that. Outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city with fire and all that was in it, only the silver, gold, articles of bronze and irons they put in the treasury of the house of the Lord. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared and she's lived in the midst of Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Rahab denies her culture, and now she's in a new culture and people group, but she's not really in. She gets to live outside the camp. Why? Because she's ceremonially unclean. She's a prostitute, right? She, she hasn't gone through the rituals of being allowed to be within the people of God. She's a foreigner, and so they get placed outside the camp. The writer of Hebrews is banking on his good Hebrew audience knowing the story of Rahab and knowing what happened to her being placed outside the camp. And here's why. Because in Hebrews 13, he talks about it. He says, Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. You see what he's saying? Don't go to the dietary laws of the Old Testament. Like, we're encouraged by grace, not by not eating pork. That's not what we're doing. That doesn't benefit anybody. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned where? 
outside the camp. You see that? He is alluding to this story in the Old Testament of where they burn animals for the Day of Atonement. But he's also banking on, they remember Rahab was placed outside the camp. Why is this important? He goes on, he says, Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered where? Outside the camp, outside the gate. Jesus wasn't crucified in the middle of Jerusalem. He was crucified outside the city walls. That was the law. So let us go out to him outside the camp. You see that? That's the, that's the, that's the application. Let's go to Jesus outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we're seeking the city which is to come. He's saying, you, you, you should be okay being identified as ceremonially unclean. Because I'm pretty sure there was a guy named Jesus who was. I'm pretty sure he didn't stay in the comforts of Judaism, right? That's where we're to go. We're to follow God in reality to where he leads, not in the comfort of our former ways. You know, kind of like Rahab, who left literally her gates to go outside the camp. And that's where she started anew. That's who we as Christians need to be. We don't need to seek our culture and the protections of being here and our great cities and our great accomplishments and our great 401ks and all these things. We are seeking a city which is to come. Not Jerusalem, not Jericho, heaven. We're seeking something which is to come. And so let's go outside, outside the camp. Fear of God over fear of man. The second thing I think we can learn from Rahab is that living by faith is much greater than living by fabrication. And what I mean by fabrication is trying to make something of yourself. So much of our life, we're trying to do something great. We're trying to make something of ourselves. My, not my family. My family's not going to go down that route, right? And I'm going to plan ahead. I'll never be in a bad financial situation like my parents were, like my uncles were, right? Oh, and not my faith. Oh, no. My career, I'm going to keep advancing. I got a, I got a five-year plan. I got a 10-year plan. What was Rahab's 10-year plan? Have you ever thought about that? She had no idea what was to come in her future, but she knew she was going to be faithful to the Lord that day. Faithful to the Lord. So many of us want to be great, and God wants us to be faithful. And when we're faithful, he does great things. He makes great things come of our lives. It's not about us manufacturing this stuff. Our job is faithful to, faithfulness, being faithful with today. I'm pretty sure the Bible says that kind of stuff. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Don't worry. Man plans his steps, but God directs his path, right? I think all these passages about this, you know, you've planned ahead for your finances, for your family, for your career. And then a global pandemic or a bad recession or a cancer diagnosis, it can just wipe that out in one day. Isn't that crazy? All of our plans can just come crumbling down. Well, that can't be what life's about. It's not. Faithfulness is what life's about. Faithfulness to what God says. Faithfulness to who he is. Rahab was faithful to God. Her faith rescued her from perishing with her whole culture. But it did more than that. Her faithfulness produced something that no way could she have ever manufactured or even thought of in her wildest dream. In Matthew 1, it gives us some insight to this. It says, Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the fa father of Salmon. And Salmon 
was the father of Boaz by who? Rahab the prostitute, pagan Canaanite. It doesn't say all that, but that's who she was, right? Wait a second. Wait a second. She married a guy. She met a boy. Salmon, right? This is crazy. So some Israelite boy from the tribe of Judah was cool with marrying the Canaanite prostitute who followed God and left. Is that cool? It's really, really cool. Some people think, and, and this, we don't know this for sure, but some people claim that uh, Salmon was actually one of the two spies who got sent by Joshua and first met Rahab. And over time, they fell in love and they started a family, right? We see that she has a, a son named Boaz. You remember him from the book of Ruth? He marries Ruth, the Moabite woman. He's, he's okay with marrying somebody who's not Jewish because he's from a lineage where that's okay. And then this actually, this passage in Matthew is Jesus' genealogy, right? Rahab has Boaz. Eventually, Boaz has Jesse. Jesse has David. Jesus comes from David. Jesus has pagan, prostitute, Canaanite blood in his family lineage. Is that fascinating to you? She couldn't have manufactured that. She didn't know what her future would hold, but she was faithful with what God wanted her to do. And then God made something great come through her. It's really interesting, too. Um, I got to show you this, and then we'll be done. In Numbers 13, this is about the first time Moses sent the 12 spies in to the land, and then they didn't listen. It says, these are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. They just were previously listed. But Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Did you know Joshua is not his real name? It's a nickname. His real name was Hosea. Isn't that interesting? Uh, the, the name Hosea means salvation. And Moses gave him this nickname. He added a ya onto the beginning of his name, Yeshua. And he changed his name to uh, Yahweh is salvation, is what the name means. Yahweh is salvation. And you think about Joshua delivering and freeing and, and saving a prostitute. And then you think about the prophet Hosea, hundreds of years later, was commanded to marry a prostitute. You remember that story? And to, to be faithful to her as she kept rejecting him, and he was supposed to be a picture of God's faithfulness to us. And then you get to the New Testament, and Matthew records that Joseph was told to name Mary's son what? We translated Jesus, but that's not his name. His name was Yeshua. His name was Joshua. Yahweh saves. How did, how did that Joshua treat prostitutes, like the woman at the well and like Mary Magdalene? It's fascinating, isn't it? There's this, there's this pagan Canaanite prostitute who comes to the realization that Yahweh is the true God of all, and she's willing to follow him wherever he leads. And through her comes the Savior of us. Couldn't have fabricated that. Faithfulness is greater than fabrication. Fear of God is greater than fear of man. What are the things that you are compromising on? Cultural pressures. Work pressures, family pressures. What issues do you have in your background that you're not proud of, like Rahab, right? What sins are there that pressure you? No, no, I can't, I can't be faithful. Yes, you can. And that's the point of what the author of Hebrews is saying. Press on outside the camp. Leave everything for faithfulness to Jesus. 
That's who we're supposed to be. That's how we're supposed to be. And I pray for us as a church, as a church I attend, as a church I care about, that we can be a people who are a light in a dark place. And as culture changes, gets worse, gets better, who cares? We're faithful. We're faithful no matter what. And we can be that city on a hill. We can be that beacon of hope, pointing people to our true home. Because here we have no lasting city, but we're pressing on for the city that's to come. Amen? Amen.